that was ever written. And I say that not on my own authority, but according to the word of God, because the Holy Spirit says that this is the song of songs in the first verse. Surely we are finding it to be so as we go through the most important and most delightful of all things human and divine is love. And this song is about the mutual love between the Son of God and his church, which is his betrothed bride. Throughout the Bible, he is presented to us as the bridegroom, and we are presented as his wife, who is betrothed to him by covenant, awaiting the wedding at the last day. The Song of Solomon is about our relationship with him. In this Song of Songs, we have seen how we, the bride, if we are among those who make up his bride, the believing church, yearn for him to show us his love, to kiss us with the kisses of his mouth. We delight in him and find his love to be better than wine. Already there have been many expressions of delight about him, our delight in him and his delight in us. Last week, we looked at a special experience that we sometimes have in which he brings us from our ordinary walk with him to his banqueting house of love. Now, I told you it was an extraordinary thing that we looked at last time. It's what we might call a mountaintop experience. We may even go not ever have one of those very particularly strongly in our whole life. Or we may, be, we may have them more than once. But we, it's a time when the, his love is so powerful and overwhelming that we're said to be sick with love. We're overwhelmed and we have to be sustained and held up. This, of course, is not our normal experience. It's a foretaste of heaven. We cannot expect to live constantly in the raptures of his love like that in this world. He brings these times to us when he pleases. You remember that's what we saw. Ordinarily, what do we do? What is our task? Are we supposed to go to the banqueting house? No, we're supposed to go and we're supposed to stay under the tree where Christ is represented by the tree, you remember, that protects us with shade and that also has fruit in comparison with all the other trees. As God's people, we have realized that there's only one tree for us. We're done with idols. We're done with the other trees. Make all their promises. There's one tree that has apples. And that's where we go and where we sit with delight in his shade. And we partake of his fruit, which is sweet to our taste. But uh, then the mountaintop thing, how does that, the banqueting house, how does that come about? Well, he comes to us, doesn't he? He comes and takes us from the tree to the banqueting house. And that's his sovereign prerogative. But you see, ordinarily, we go through normal seasons in our relationship with him. There is winter and there is springtime. There is summer and there is the harvest time, the autumn. Each season has its part in development of our relationship with him. We have times when he seems more distant and times when he seems very near and very active. Sometimes the distance is the result of our own sin and then his chastisement because of that sin. But sometimes it's simply a time that he withdraws in order to deepen our relationship with him. Because you see, the spring is not when the depth comes. The spring is when new life springs up everywhere in our relationship with him. But the winter is when we go through in a darker, colder time and yet the, the muscles are built. The strength is brought to pass. As a woodworker, I know this with wood, that if you had wood that only had the spring and summer growth, you would have a, a weak tree. The grain that grows slower in the wintertime is the strong grain. And the other grain, it grows fast, it creates size, but it doesn't make the strength. So you see, he uses different seasons in our life. Everyone knows when you go through trials, you wouldn't exactly call it the springtime. You feel like you're dying. It's wintertime. But strength is built. You come out of that stronger than you were when you went into it. But then the springtime comes. And you see these seasons are encouraging because 
we, we look for the spring. We know that the spring will come after the winter. The Song of Songs has parts in it that speak about all sorts of different aspects of our relationship with Christ, our husband. It's really quite a complete sampling that we have here. Last week, again, was about a mountaintop experience, rare and random. This week addresses the seasons of spring and our relationship with him that come around in a much more regular way. Not that we can mark them on a calendar. They don't come regular like that. That You can say, oh, it's time for the Lord to come and visit me again. With No, it's not like that. But um, in the winter, what I was saying before, in the wintertime, we can know that the spring is going to come, that it won't always be winter. It speaks of those times when he comes to us to bring forth fresh new life in our relationship with him. Now, I can't say you might not have a wintertime that might last five or ten years. Uh, again, God works how he wishes. You can have um, very short seasons as well. It's all in, in his hands. Such times are very precious times when he comes though in the spring of new life because there's fresh new life in our relationship with him flowers are are blossoming and everything is uh, coming together such times are very precious and we rightly long for them we are right to to look for the spring he's so good to us coming to cultivate new love in our relationship this section does not speak about how the winter season came when the, as it talks about the spring. We're, we'll see some, some later sections that do talk about how because of our sin the winter came. But the winter doesn't always come because of sin. It, this passage here does not tell whether we brought on the winter by our sin or not. There's no repentance and no call to repentance that's mentioned here. There's no mention of chastisement. There is only... the happy description of Jesus, our husband, coming to bring new life and growth to us in our relationship with him. That's what this chapter is about. We'll see some other stuff later on in the song. Okay, so please listen now as I read this section to you, this happy springtime section. Here's God's word beginning with chapter 2, verse 8. Song of Solomon, chapter 2, verse 8. The word of God. The voice of my beloved... Behold, he comes leaping upon the mountains, skipping upon the hills. My beloved is like a gazelle or a young stag. Behold, he stands behind our wall. He is looking through the windows, gazing through the lattice. My beloved spoke and said to me, Rise up, my love, my fair one, and come away. For lo, the winter is past. The rain is over and gone. The flowers appear on the earth. The time of singing has come and the voice of the turtle dove is heard in our land. The fig tree puts forth her green figs and the vines with the tender grapes give a good smell. Rise up, my love, my fair one, and come away. O my dove in the clefts of the rock and the secret places of the cliff, let me see your face. Let me hear your voice, for your voice is sweet and your face is lovely. Catch us the foxes the little foxes that spoil the vines, for our vines have tender grapes. My beloved is mine, and I am his. He feeds his flock among the lilies. Until the day breaks and the shadows flee away, turn, my beloved, and be like a gazelle or a young stag upon the mountains of Bether. And there we end the reading of God's holy and exalted word. May the Lord bless it to our understanding, and may he now bless the expounding of this word. Before I begin, I want to explain how I will be speaking of the bride of Jesus. First, I will speak of her as one bride who is made up of many members. You're familiar with that if you've been in this, involved in this series. This is what the church is. She is made up of true believers in every age, from every age. This includes true believers of the Old Testament as well as the New. She is one bride consisting of many members. So sometimes we can speak of her in a plural way, sometimes in a singular way. One church, many members. Second, I will speak of her as betrothed to Jesus, her husband. Betrothal in the Bible is sort of like engagement for us, but it's actually much, much more than engagement. It involves a covenant that can only be broken by adultery. The, the, spouse, the, the husband and wife can speak of each other as husband, the man and woman can speak of each other as husband and wife. 
but they have not yet had their wedding. They have not yet consummated their marriage either. These categories that I'm talking about are not super rigid in the Bible. Uh, When our relationship with Christ is spoken of is our marriage to him. Because, for example, when we are betrothed to him, we're said to be fruitful through our relationship with him and to bring forth children, which, of course, we do through our union with Christ. But obviously, it's not the way that a man and woman would be fruitful, where it would be wrong to do that before marriage, to have relations before marriage that would bring forth children. So it's not like a rigid category because it's, it's, it's an allegory of what we have. And you know how these things work in the scripture. Like, for instance, we talk about the Old Testament being shadows and the New Testament being the substance. And uh, we say, you know, you had all the sacrifices and the temple and the priests and all these things. And then Christ comes and he's the priest. He's the sacrifice. He's the true thing that all the he's the substance. All the other was shadows of him. But then we talk about what we have now being shadows compared to what's going to happen when he comes back. So it's a relative thing. And it's kind of that way with some of these other um, pictures and analogies. They can be used in different ways in different contexts. But the overall tenor of Scripture is that we're looking forward to the great wedding feast at the last day. When the bride is presented to Christ as adorned for her husband without spot or blemish, she comes down from heaven to be his bride and to live in his house forever and ever in the Father's house. God is the Father and Jesus is the husband. Um, But already... He is our husband. We're betrothed to him. We already have a covenant bond that God has made with him. We're we're already, in that sense, partakers of his house. So we will enjoy this full glory that is yet to come. Okay, so we're betrothed, and that's the way we generally see it in the Song of Solomon. Then the third way that I speak of the bride is in the first person plural. Now, not always. Sometimes I refer to her as her. But often I will speak of her as we or us. That's because I am addressing a congregation of God's people who, for the most part, profess to believe in Jesus Christ and to trust in him for salvation. So if you are true to your profession, then that means that you are his um, part of his bride. And so when I speak of the bride as we and us, you see, we're part of that bride that I say has many members that goes through all the ages. So we're talking about what we say to him and what he does to us. It's uh, we're all part of that together. And as I mentioned before, when we speak of coming to him, we don't mean that we physically go to him, but that we have trusted in him. We come looking to him for forgiveness of sin that we might forever live with him and with his Father as our God. He has shown us that we are sinners who need to be saved, and he's shown us that only he can save us, and that he will save all who come to him. So we have come, therefore, believing, come looking to him for salvation, falling upon him, as it were, for our salvation as those who are helpless and cannot save ourselves. You have not yet trusted, if you have not yet trusted in him, then I hope that you will do so very, very soon. You're not his betrothed bride. And if you should die without him as your husband, you will perish forever under the wrath and curse of God. You flee from the wrath to come, the wrath that you justly deserve by coming to him. And you also are restored to a precious forever relationship with God the Father and with God the Son when you come to him. Okay, so in speaking about the bride of Christ, I'll often speak of her as we or us. With that understood, I will begin my exposition of this part of the Song of Solomon. We will begin with the Song of Solomon, chapter 2, verse 8 and 9. So the first two verses. As Jesus' betrothed bride, in verses 8 and 9, we describe the wonderful way he comes to us in the spring seasons of our relationship with him. Verse 8 begins with a joyous exclamation, the voice of my beloved. There is great excitement and anticipation because we hear him coming. 
He has been in a certain sense absent from us. Yes, we have continued to have a relationship with him. We we know him as our husband and we've continued to pray to him and we've seen him answer prayers and his word comes to us. We've learned things about him. We've rejoiced in who he is. But it speaks of a time when there has been some sort of a distance, the winter time, when these things are not so fresh and so vivid and so so life giving as they are in the springtime. Something like a wife when her husband is on a business trip or when he's off at war, then there's a kind of a distance. He's still her husband. They still can write to each other or talk on the phone or whatever, but it's not the same. There is love, there is correspondence, but it's not the same as when she hears his voice. You see, when she sees him. But now we break out in joyous rapture because we hear his voice. His voice is a voice that we recognize with delight. Because if we've trusted in Christ, we've heard that voice before. Jesus says that everyone who believes has heard the voice of the son of god that's how they came to believe it's not an audible voice that you hear with your ears this is an allegory it is the voice that we hear when he begins to manifest himself to us by his word and spirit the holy spirit we begin to see things about him and about our own lives in relation to him in a fresh and vivid way, where there was death before, we are very glad to hear the familiar voice that we realize we have missed for a while. It's been winter time. Our excitement builds as we sense him coming nearer and nearer to us. He is speaking into our lives again in a way that we had almost forgotten in a way that convicts us of our sin more, and in a way that encourages us more in his promises than we had been encouraged of late, and in a way that causes us to see him more clearly and more fully than we have seen him before. There is a life-giving power that is at work, a kind of magic, you could call it, where, where life is coming forth where there was not life. He's, his voice is, is penetrating and, and speaking into our lives and bringing forth faith and relationship that was not there before. Yes, there was faith there before we had a relationship with him, but it's made it stronger and fuller. There's new growth happening. We cry out then, When this happens with joyful anticipation, behold, he comes. You see, it's an exclamation here, excitement. The voice of my beloved, behold, he comes. Look, it's him. Now, our joy swells as we take notice of how eager he is to come to us. We describe his coming in verse 8. Behold, he comes leaping upon the mountains, skipping Upon the hills, my beloved is like a gazelle or a young stag. We can see his zeal and excitement in coming to us as he begins to speak into our lives again, you see. I told you last week how gazelles come at certain seasons when it's, when it's mating time. Then, then they come and the ancients often used them to, in their love poetry to describe the virility and the, and, the, and the passion of a male lover. Here is one who loved us so much that he died for us in order that he might take us as his bride. He is forming new life in us. He is coming to make his beauty and his glory known to us in fresh ways. His salvation known to us. He is coming to manifest his love. He does it in, 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 a way, in, in the way that he comes to us too. You see, the, way, the manner of his coming. This is so encouraging. It's so exhilarating. This is so exciting. He is fleet of foot. 
Have you seen a gazelle before? I'm sure you have. You see footage of these kind of things. You watch the nature shows or whatever. And you see a gazelle leaping across the rocks, coming with, with a, there's a beauty, there's a finesse there that it, it, it comes through great speed. I, I think here of a living illustration that I have with, with our little puppy dog. When we go to Peggy's Cove and we have all the rocks there and sometimes we'll split up and we'll be, we'll be far away from each other and our family and then one group will call to the dog and she runs to the other group. She goes across the rocks and she's bouncing, going up hills that you never thought she could go up and, and coming to us. And there's something very, very precious about having someone coming with enthusiasm like that, coming to see you. Coming to be with you, wanting, and, and here the Son of God is described like this as this gazelle. His zeal is so great that he leaps across here hills and mountains to get to us. No barrier can slow him down once he has decided to come. Have we sins? Have we guilt? Have we trials and sorrows that have clouded our relation to him? Have we temptations? Are there mountains of devils and oppressors that are standing in the way? He takes down every barrier and we say, behold, he is coming like a gazelle or a young roe, leaping upon the mountains, skipping upon the hills. Our Jesus will come to us. That is our confidence. The excitement builds. He is coming to cultivate love between us and him. That is why he's coming. That is what he does in his coming. That's what happens. The way he comes is cultivating the relationship of trusting love toward him from us and his love, showing his love, manifesting his love to us. Soon we realize that he has come near, that he has arrived. It started out with him coming across the hills, and now he has arrived. We know that he is at the wall. He is watching us through the windows and the lattice with desire for us, for love. Verse 9 continues, Behold, he stands behind our wall. He is looking through the windows, gazing through the lattice. Okay, there's kind of a, almost a teasing here as he has come nearer and nearer and nearer. And now he's very near, but still outside the wall. We begin to interact with him as one who is at hand. One we know is watching us and beginning to show himself even more fully to us. At first, it is the more frequent sightings of him that we have at the window Again, like he's just showing himself quickly. We begin to, when that happens, what happens to us? We begin to change our ways, to conform to him. He's watching us. We know he's watching us. He lives. We turn from our sins. Our prayer increases. Our attitude is transformed. Joy comes into our life because he has come to us. Surely you who know Christ know of these seasons of nearness that come in the springtime of our relationship with him. George Burroughs says, when we have been through a season of coldness and decline, how often have we been sweetly surprised by, the, by an influence coming over the heart? We could hardly tell whence or how. Warming the heart drawing the attention back to the forgotten Savior, inclining us to prayer, and giving evidences of the return of Jesus. We are taken by surprise. We look up with wondering love and exclaim, the voice of my beloved. It's him. He's here. I know this voice. Such is our experience of his approach in the springtime seasons of his relationship with us and ours with him. Now let's move on to look at verses 10 through 15, where we see the springtime described. As Jesus' betrothed bride, in verses 10 through 15, we describe how he beckons us to give attention to the flowering of our relationship with him. The flowering, the bringing forth of new things 
in our relationship with him. The flowering of that relationship. First in verses 10 through 13, we're looking at 10 through 15 overall in this section, but beginning with 10 through 13, he coaxes us to come away with him that we might experience springtime in our relationship with him, that we might experience growth in our relationship with him. Verse 10 and verse 13 end with the same sweet invitation. Rise up, my love, my fair one, and come away. It's an inclusio where you have it, you know, at the beginning and end of this, uh, of 10 to 13. The language is a bit more vivid with the Hebrew pronouns that translated if you say, rise you up, my love, my fair one, and come you away. Rise up tells us that we need to rouse ourselves. We realize we've been sluggish. You know, the winter has made us cold and sluggish and, and, and we need to get up and we need to follow him. Come away alerts us that we need to return to him. We've been distant for too long and see how he allures us by the titles that he gives us. He calls us my love and my fair one. He warms our hearts in this way, reassuring us that he loves us still. Even after the winter, when we might not have been as clear about that, when we might not have been so sure of that, we'd almost forgotten. And now he comes and renews those commitments, uh, the, that, that reality to us. He has redeemed us, hasn't he? Of course he loves us. He's pardoned us. He's justified us. He's sanctified us. We are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus to live beautifully for him. Surely it's an irresistible call. The one who loves us is saying, hey, come, come and live, come and live. Spring has come. Our relationship to, to our relationship with him. It is the season of new life, the time for new growth to erupt and blossom. How lovely are his words describing not the land, but using the land to illustrate our relationship with him. Okay, beginning our relationship with him, beginning to burst forth with life. Verse 11 through 13. For lo, the winter is past. The rain is over and gone. Now we need to say something about their kind of climate. In Judea, they would have the winter time and then there would be a rainy season that would prepare the earth for bringing forth life and the seeds that were in it and everything. And then when the rainy season was over, then it was springtime. And that's when all the things started coming out. Um, the flower, and in verse 12, he goes on, the flowers appear on the earth. The time of singing has come and the voice of the turtle dove is heard in our land. You know, we always hear in our house the voice of the peepers when the springtime comes. And we know that spring is at hand when the, we open the windows at night and we hear this sound. It's uh, the turtle dove, the birds. You hear the birds singing as well in the springtime. The fig tree puts forth her green figs and the vines with the tender grapes give a good smell. Such an exhilarating time, isn't it? There's fresh new life that's popping up everywhere, that's appearing everywhere. It's like the psalm that we sang. He moves across and leaves behind what is green and fruitful and flocks that are, are, are feeding in the fields and everything. There's a, there's a, his word has a, now has a, a sweetness and a power to it as a life-giving force in our lives. We are infused with new life that energizes us into new obedience, new repentance. Sins that we did not notice become obvious to us and we turn from those sins. Hard thoughts toward the Lord that, of being unfair to us or they disappear. Doubts of his love are replaced with assurance of his love. Sluggish, sleepy prayers are replaced with fervent effectual prayers where we cry out to God. Our heart that was cold and full of grumbling has a new song of praise to our God. The winter has passed. 
The spring has come and singing is heard. The stench of death and decay is replaced with the sweet savor of blossoms and tender grapes. Spring has come. As Temper Longman says, this evokes a scene of newness, vigor, freshness, joy, expectation. In verse 14, we recount how he speaks of his desire to see us at these times. We, his dove, have been shut up for too long in the cleft of the rock like a frightened dove. A silly dove is referred to in Ephesians. Uh, Hosea, uh, a silly dove hiding away in the rocky cliffs. Verse 14, oh, my dove, he says to us in the clefts of the rock in the secret places of the cliff. He wants he wants us to come out. He wants to see us again. Okay, he 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 wants to come out of our hiding. Verse 14 continues. Let me see your face. Let me hear your voice for your voice is sweet and your face is lovely. Now, there's some people that find chiasms in Hebrew poetry on every single page. But here is a very clear chiasm. That's one of the things where you have something where you talk about one thing and then you talk about another thing and then you talk about the the other thing again and then you talk about the first thing again. So it's kind of like where it's an A-B-B-A kind of an arrangement. So here you see the face is mentioned first and fourth, first and last in these four phrases. And the voice is mentioned second and third. So he wants to see our face. Why? Because it's lovely. The fourth thing, your face is lovely. And he wants to hear our voice, the middle part, because it is sweet. He is reminding us that he now not that, that he not only loves us despite our sins, we've talked about this before in the Song of Solomon, but that he delights in what he has made us to be as a new creation. He's brought something new and, and pleasing to him in our life. He's, we're his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works. We are his chosen bride, and he wants to have fellowship with us. Why are we hiding from him? Why are we tucked away in the, in the cleft of the rock? He wants to see us again because we please him. He wants to make us even more pleasing. So he's saying, you know, come away with me. In verse 15, we recount how in these times of spring, his love is expressed in guarding the new growth that is coming in our relationship with him. Before I move on to that, though, why do I keep saying we recount this and this? Well, you see, he's not actually speaking here. She is speaking Because what he said to her in this springtime made such an impression on her that she remembers it all. And what she's doing is she's quoting here what he said to her. So that's why I keep saying that in verse 14, we recount how he speaks of his desire to us. We recount, we the bride. In verse 15, we recount how in these times of spring, his love is expressed in guarding the new growth that is coming in our relationship with him. We remember that. He cares about what's happening here and he wants it to be protected, you see. So look, there are tender grapes on the vines. There's new growth. Love is in its initial stages. These, these new aspects of love in this relationship that can easily be harmed in that tender time by the foxes. Even the little foxes can wreak havoc. The Nat Bible note says, Foxes are always spoken of in a negative light in the Old Testament and in the ancient world were particularly associated with their destructive tendencies with regard to vineyards. Judges 15.4, Nehemiah 4.3, Psalm 63.10, Lamentations 5.18, Ezekiel 13.4. Here, the foxes are probably used figuratively to represent politically destructive problems which could, I'm sorry, said politically potentially destructive problems which could destroy their romantic relationship and which could hinder it from ripening into marriage so the foxes are anything that's going to destroy that new growth that is starting to happen it's just starting to bud satan and his agents in the air and in the world okay the ones that are like us flesh and blood and the ones that are not of flesh and blood Um, they will do all they can to disrupt 
the new growth and to, to, to hinder our walk with Christ. There will be persecutions. There will be trials and temptations. There will be efforts to sow doubts, efforts to distract us, to draw us after other things. In the springtime, when all this life is, is being brought forth, we will go to social media when we ought to go to prayer. Like, why, why would we do when It's a time when, when God is really working and speaking. Why would, we, why would we ignore his word at such a time? We'll sleep in when we ought to be reading his word. We'll stay home from church when we ought to be worshiping. We'll turn to drink, to food, to lust, to greed for life when our Lord has come to give us new life from him. We're looking to these other things for life. Why? The springtime with our Lord and our relationship with him is here. We will cultivate bitterness, doubts of our husband's promises leading to anxiety and fear and depression and emptiness. And we will destroy the fresh growth by these things. If he is speaking, guard against these things. Away with these little foxes. Do not let them live. Mortify your members. The spring growth in your relationship with Christ is too important to let anything destroy it. Trivial things destroy it. Why, why, why? It's tender. Don't think otherwise that it's robust. It's not robust. This is a springtime growth. Growth comes in the spring. Strength comes in the winter. So stand guard and catch those little foxes. Do what Adam didn't do in the garden to the great ruin of all mankind. He was supposed to guard and keep the garden. He did not do it. Guard your life. Guard your soul. Guard the tender growth from the little foxes that spoil the vines. All of this. What what an irresistible appeal Jesus, our husband, makes in the spring seasons of our marriage with him. With what zeal he comes to us. We saw him leaping across the hills. And with what designs for growth in our love. This description of the springtime growth that, that we, have to, we have to guard and that we come away to obtain. Now, verse 16 and 17 close the chapter with our response to him when we consider the spring season that he has presented to us. As his betrothed bride, in verse 16 and 17 we react to his springtime visitations. His coming to us like he does in these times causes us to remember that we belong to him and that he belongs to us. Verse 16, my beloved is mine and I am his. Of course it's so. Did he not come across the mountains to you because you belong to him? Yes, this is mutual ownership of each other. He has given himself wholly to us. He has poured out his life. He is ours. And we are his. We have given ourselves up to him as our husband. To no longer live for ourselves, but for him who died and rose again. We live for his pleasure, for his delight. We're tired of ourselves That's why we are away with all that selfish stuff with anxiety and pride and and, and lust and all of those things. We're here for him now. He's our master. The world is offended at such a notion. They know nothing of such love as this. They think of exploitation because they don't know our Jesus. You would give yourself to be someone else's possession, they say, with a, with a curl to their lip. They think of the crushing of self because their way of finding life is by breaking away from God, breaking away from belonging to anyone, as Adam and Eve did in the garden. That was their way. That was Satan's way. You can be like God. Don't be under God. You come and be your own person. Do what you want. Not under him as his bride or anything like that. They think life is found by self-esteem. Instead of by esteeming the God of heaven. As our master, God's son. They think life is found by independence from God. Instead of by submission to God. They know nothing of the loving relationship. Where you wholly give yourself up to Christ. And find your life. 
You find your life in his love and grace. You find out who you are. People say, I want to find out who I am. Well, you'll never, you'll only find death if you go try to go apart from the Lord. You, you find out who you are. You're the image of God. We were made in the image of God and we come to him and we find life. You're wasting your life. You're spending your life away if you ignore these things. They do not know that by holding on to their life, they lose their life. They completely lose it. That's what Jesus says. But if you die, then you rise to life in Christ. You die to that old selfish mode. How wonderful this relationship is and how unequal this relationship is. What, what I mean by an unequal relationship is very unequal. I mean, how could it even be that, that he, the son of God, should give himself to us, for us, that he should be ours? He's God. We are the creature. He is the creator. Yet he has given himself even to the death of the cross for us. That's how completely he's given, more than we give ourselves to him. His covenant is expressed in the words, I will be your God and you will be my people. For that to be, he had to take flesh. He who is God had to take flesh. And then suffer. He who is God had to come and suffer and die on the cross for our sins. To bear the shame and the guilt. Then he had to send his spirit and word to call us. And regenerate us and sanctify us. So that we would die to self. And come to him for life. Eternal life. Now we can say of him. My beloved is mine. And I am his. He has given me life in him. When before I was dead. James Durham says, we are one flesh with him. Here, there is real union, though spiritual. Mutual union. Kindly union. Full union. An indissoluble union. Can never be destroyed. In response to his springtime visitations, we not only remember that he is ours and that we are his, we also observe how habitual our Lord's springtime visitations are. It's another thing that we see. In the second part of verse 16, we say of our beloved, he feeds his flock among the lilies. Now here we speak of him as the gazelle again. We're moving back, you know, that gazelle picture. Uh, the gazelle is coming where? To graze in his favorite place. Where is the field that we see the gazelle grazing every day? It's among the lilies. That's his chosen place where he goes. The picture of this graceful creature frequenting this particular field of lilies. Our version, and some others as well, supplies the, word, the words his flock, where it says that he feeds his flock. But if you look at that, it's in italics. His flock is in italics because it's not in the original the very feed, the, the very word feed means to pasture. But it can be either, to use grammatical designation, transitive or intransitive. You know, transitive verb or an intransitive verb. It can be simply feeding and grazing, or it can be feeding someone else. In other words, the transitive is where I'm feeding, like, like a, maybe I'm feeding a baby or something like that. The intransitive is where I'm feeding, I'm eating. I'm the one eating. So it's not doesn't act on another person. The focus is here, here is not on who is being fed, but on the place where the gazelle comes to feed. And where is that? With the lilies, among the lilies. Already back in verse 2, Christ has called us his lilies among the thorns. He is the lily of the valley, and we are like lilies among the thorns. The point is that he loves to be with us. He delights to come and be in fellowship with us. We take great encouragement then in seeing how regular he is in coming to be with us and how much he loves to be with us. He comes to this field over and over again. He loves to be here with the lilies. He has promised that he will never leave us or forsake us. He has said that he will be with us forever. This is my dwelling place. I love it here, he says. I love it well. 
observing his desire to be with us, stirs up prayer and an earnest cry to him, a cry of our heart to him. So in verse 17, we ask him to do what? To continue these springtime visitations. Keep on coming to this field. We do not want him to ever stop until the day comes that when he, when he comes to be with us forever. Verse 17 says, Until the day breaks and the shadows flee away, the dawning of a whole new day. Until then, turn, my beloved, and be like a gazelle or a young stag upon the mountains of Bether. We are waiting for that great day that will come, the last day when our Lord Jesus Christ will come to us without the shadows. Yes, there has been a change, as I mentioned before, from the shadow to reality, from the Old Testament with its tabernacle and temple and the priests and the sacrifices and ritual laws, to the reality of a Savior who came in the flesh, was crucified for our sins, rose again and ascended into heaven where he reigns until he has gathered all that the Father has given him. There is a great change from shadow to substance. But still, we have ordinances now in the New Testament. We have the word. As I mentioned before, we connect with him by faith instead of face to face. There's sacraments where symbols that are used to represent him rather than him himself. Prayer without all and all these things. They're all the shadows of the old covenant are gone. So we have the word sacraments and prayer, which is far better than what we had in the old covenant. But. We will not forever have things like bread and wine to remember him. We will have him face to face when he returns with glory and power. When he destroys Satan and all who are in league with him. When he abolishes death and the curse. When he perfects us in righteousness and when he marries us. This is when the day breaks and the shadows flee away. So we're looking forward to that. But until then... What do we want? We want the springtime visitations. We want him to keep coming, closing the gap that is between him and us by leaping over the mountains of Bether. Okay, now we've got a new word there, Bether. Where did that come from? Mountains of, it said the mountains and hills before. Now we've got Bether stuck in there. What is that talking about? Bether means separation or cutting. It's even used when Abraham, when the, he made the covenant, he cut the parts of the, of the animal and they passed between. It's, it's a, a gap, a, a, a severance. The mountains of, of Bether. It's what we talked about before. It's something that is a barrier between us and him. And the, the, the gazelle and the stag comes leaping over the mountains of Bether. We want him to keep coming to us with his springtime visitation to keep closing the gap, the mountain that stands between us and him, to break through all that divides us from him, whatever it is, and to call us to rise up and to come away with him from our relationship, that that our relationship with him might grow and bring forth new springtime fruit. Turn to us again, we say to him. Instead of going somewhere else, turn to us again. Keep turning back to us again and again. Let us keep seeing you come to us over those mountains and hills. There is something very wonderful about the very thought of the Son of God coming to us like a gazelle and a young stag until the day breaks and the shadows flee away. These shadows of visitation where he comes to us. Did he not promise? In Genesis 8.22, God said concerning the earth. Now this is concerning the regular, regular old things growing out in, the, in nature. After the flood, God said in Genesis 8.22, While the earth remains seed time and harvest. We're not going to have no harvest time. Cold and heat Winter and summer, in day and night, shall not cease. That was his promise after the flood. Now, if God promised that about nature, how much more can we expect that 
in our relationship with him. When he has purchased us with his own blood, when he's brought us to himself, that there will be seasons. That if it is winter time, the springtime will come. That is our hope and our assurance. It's true of this material world. How much more may we expect it in our love relationship with him as his dear bride, his love, his dove, his fair one. Please stand and let's call on the name of our Lord. Gracious Heavenly Father, you make us so happy in the springtime, Lord Jesus Christ. The happiness that we have when you are drawing near to us with enthusiasm to bring new, fresh life, to give us first glimpses of yourself that we have not had in a long time, and then to break in more fully and to call us to come away with you and to see the the growth everywhere all over our lives. Father, what a wonderful time the springtime is, how refreshing it is. We thank you so much, Lord, for these beautiful pictures. And whether right now we're personally in the springtime or whether we're not, Lord, We thank you and praise you that you are at work in our lives if we are your people. And that if we're in the middle of winter, we know that spring will come. If we're in the seed time, or well, the spring is the seed time, but if we're in the the summer, if we're in the, the harvest time, then those are special times too. But we thank you, O Lord, that you're at work in us and that you're bringing forth what is good concerning us. You're committed to us. Your relationship to us is one that we can trust and we can look for the blessing that only you can give to us. So, Lord, we call on your name that while the earth remains, that there would be seed time and harvest, cold and heat, winter and summer and day and night until you come at the end of the age and bring us the final day where the shadows will flee away and there will be no more curse. Lord, we thank you for that hope that we have. Oh, Father, give us trusting confidence as a bride to a husband who will never disappoint us. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. And you can be seated as we prepare to come to the Lord's table. Blessing of the Lord. He who testifies to these things says, Surely I am coming quickly. Even so, come, Lord Jesus, receive the blessing, the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Amen.